You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big fan of the original two seasons of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, the cartoon, followed the adventures of a group of teenagers and their dog as they encountered many allegedly paranormal situations and tried to get to the bottom of them. It almost always turned out that the mysterious phenomena were being caused by criminals faking the events to cover up their crimes. When I was growing up, I think the three biggest influences on me from the world of fiction were Sherlock Holmes, Mr. Spock, and Velma Dinkley. In the original series, Velma was always the voice of reason and pursued an evidence-based interpretation of whatever mystery the gang was investigating. I mention this because it was with considerable disappointment that I walked through my own living room to encounter my children listening to this. A crazy mummified corpse whispering Nibiru is creepy times ten. It gets creepier. I googled it and found a lot, namely this. Nibiru is a planet listed in the writings of Zachariah Sitchin, particularly his book The Twelfth Planet. According to Sitchin's interpretation of Babylonian religious texts, a giant planet called Nibiru passes by Earth every 3,600 years and allows its sentient inhabitants to interact with humanity. These beings, which Sitchin identified with the Anunnaki of Sumerian myth, would become humanity's first gods. My favorite internet encyclopedia says there's supposed to be a collision. The Nibiru collision is a disastrous encounter between the Earth and a large planetary object. <laughs> Believers in this doomsday event usually refer to this object as Planet X or Nibiru. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Longtime Monster Talk listeners will know a few things about me. For instance, that I'm a fan of the scientific method, but I'm also an enthusiastic consumer of paranormal themed media. This is part of my lifelong love affair with monsters, UFOs, the paranormal, and the kind of odd events they call Fortiana after Charles Fort, one of history's most prolific chroniclers of such material. But as these topics go, I think the ancient aliens idea is one that I'm most frustrated with 
because of the way it undermines people's understanding of where technology comes from and how innovation works. Innovation comes through countless tiny iterations and advances. They're hard-fought wins and often lost and then have to be rediscovered again. And when we see ancient people accomplishing amazing feats of engineering and architecture, we should conclude that they had developed their tools and techniques to the level capable of such accomplishment, not that space aliens came down and guided them on how to stack rocks. The archaeological evidence supports this approach. The historical evidence supports this approach. The History Channel does not seem to support this approach, but that's a different problem. And as if the ancient alien hypothesis weren't pernicious enough, now we find it bridled with a recurring apocalypse scenario involving a rogue planet and the ancient writings from Sumer and Acadia. In this episode, we'll be discussing the works of Zechariah Sitchin by talking to Dr. Michael Heiser, who has put a lot of effort into trying to set the record straight on the actual contents of ancient tablets that allegedly formed the basis of the Nibiru ancient astronauts' concepts proposed by Sitchin. This will be followed by a second episode in the very near future where we'll talk with an astronomer about rogue planets. But for now, it's time for some Monster Talk. Dr. Michael S. Heiser is a biblical scholar. He's currently the scholar-in-residence for Logos Bible Software. He's also a professor of biblical studies and is actively involved in a Christian ministry to reach out to people who've adopted paranormalist worldviews. In that work, he's become perhaps the most prominent critic of the work of Zechariah Sitchin. He's been a repeat guest on the Coast to Coast AM radio show, but now he's really arrived as we welcome him to Monster Talk. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Glad to be uh, listening to both of you. I mean, I love the show, so I'm thrilled to be oh, here. thank you. Well, thanks a lot. I really you. appreciate that. I, I tell you, I, I've been interested in uh, Sitchin and his sort of impact on the paranormal and ancient astronaut topic for a while, but what really set me off that I, I just had to reach out to you was I was walking through the living room the other day, and I heard my kids watching a, a cartoon, and suddenly they ta started talking about Nibiru and Planet X and the work of Zechariah Sitchin, and it was Scooby-Doo, and it was wow. Velma. Velma was validating Sitchin, and I about lost my mind. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a whole lot worse than having Freddy do it. it well, right, right, exactly, or Shaggy, or even Scooby, but uh, yeah, so... Uh, you know, so this interview's a matter of urgency. It's, it, right, we've got to save the kids. So that's, a, that's astonishing. It really is. You know, the show's sort of deviated from its original uh, uh, premise, which was a very skeptical kind of show to begin with, especially the first two seasons. Um, and then they added Scrappy Doo, and I think a lot lost a lot of viewers. But the uh, uh, the, yeah, the new season sort of mixes up uh, uh, sort of fictional things with real things, and uh, they that that sort of fell into the realm of uh, I think giving uh, an unusual credence to Sitchin that I don't think is really a good idea. But let but. Did your kids ask about it afterwards? Oh, no, no, no. They were just enjoying the show until I paused right. and gave them a lecture. But <laughs> <laughs> You ruined yeah, it. <laughs> it's really one of those things like, do I say something and draw attention to this, or do I just kind of let it go? Exactly. So, But yeah. just assuming that I think a lot of our listeners will be sort of aware of the peripheral effects of Sitchin's work, let's just assume that not everyone knows about him. So let, let's start off our discussion with, who is Zechariah Sitchin, or who was he, I guess? He has actually passed away, so. Well, that's really a good question, because if you actually try to find a CV or a bio uh, online uh, for Sitchin, good luck. I mean, there, there just isn't much there. Um, he was a journalist, again, but what does that mean? Uh, 
So apparently he was, he was Russian or had some Jewish descent, uh, you know, was a journalist and, uh, wasn't known for any of those things. It was really only when he started writing, um, you know, books like the 12th planet, again, espousing, uh, an ancient astronaut worldview that he really became known, but what sort of distinguished him from somebody like Von Daniken? His, I think it started with his publisher on the back of his books. And I don't know if he sort of positioned himself this way, but he was kind of cast as an ancient languages scholar. And, you know, he would, he would do things with languages and texts in the books that uh, sort of transcended what, von Daniken was doing. And so he, he came across as kind of a, a scholar figure or, you know, an, uh, an expert figure where, you know, von Daniken wasn't. So it sort of gave him this kind of air of authority. Um, and, and to be honest with you, when you're doing stuff like that, you know, you're saying, Oh, well, this cuneiform sign means this. And you know, the, the ancient texts say that like, like who's going to check up on you? Mm. Um, so it, it really not only gave him this air of authority, but it, you know, in the absence of anyone that could really, uh, critique him or bother to critique him, you know, he, he really gained quite a, a big audience, uh, for what he was doing. And do we have any idea of how he became involved in this area? And yeah, I, I, I don't really know, you know, what, what specifically was the trigger point? Um, I I kind of look at Sitchin as somebody who, you know, came up with this approach or the you know this set of ideas probably again through the influence of other uh, ancient astronaut people because mm-hmm. uh, the idea is pretty old. It's it's older than von Daniken, obviously, but um, you know, and you you yourself have gone through on other shows, you know, talking about. People like Ray Palmer in science fiction. I mean, he, he picked it up somewhere, but I, I view him as as someone who sort of came to see certain things in text, or I think imagine them in there, and then mm-hmm. be, came to believe his own mythology. Especially when it starts selling like hotcakes. I mean, you're gonna it, it's it's really going to influence um, sort of your own attitude toward what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But I don't. To me, that's not ethically good. But it's not sort of the conspiratorial sinister stuff that I've heard other people say about Sitchin that gets really bizarre. That's cracking open a can of worms. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've had people, I've had people on the, what would we call it? Sort of the, the, the paranormal speaking circuit, um, either tell me at a conference or, or even call me on the phone and tell me how, you know, Sitchin was really a paid disinformation agent of the NSA or the CIA or the he was an Illuminatist or, you know, all this kind of stuff, you know, uh, making him kind of out to be uh, a hand-picked disinformation agent to perpetuate a certain message, you know, that the, uh, the some government or some elitist insider you know, wanted him to uh, perpetuate. And, and he has this dark uh, sort of occultish sort of history to him. Um, you know, whatever. I, I, I don't really see any sort of evidence for that. Not that I was interested enough to go track it down. I, I, I think it's just more, uh, it's just easier to believe that he found a good way to make a living doing stuff and basically sitting at home writing books and becoming popular and wealthy through it. So why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that just seems to be a lot easier uh, to understand. 
Sort of an Occam's razor approach there. Yeah. So uh, presumably people are coming up to you and telling you these things because you're <laughs> well known for your website, which is stitchinisrong.com. Yeah. So um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your website and just some of the theories of stitchins that you've treated? Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'll have to correct you on his name because people have corrected me. Okay. Uh, it's it's Sitchin S I T C H I N, but it's easy to 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 say Stitchin or or spell it with an E at the end, uh, uh, or, or or an I. I mean, it it really it, it's a tough you know sort of you know word to to get well, spelled I'm, right. I'm what? getting to that that age too where I need glasses, so everything's looking a bit blurry from me. Yeah. Avoid forty. So, That's my advice. Avoid forty. Everything yeah. just goes downhill. Too late. Too late. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. He, he's wrong about that. So. <laughs> no. Sitchin is wrong. S i t c h i n, and then is wrong. Yeah. It's sort of a. Karen is wrong. I, I, right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I'll have to admit this was an inflammatory thing to call a website, but I guess I just you know got the domain name on a bad day you know i was just irritated <laughs> or something but yeah i have a lot of people ask about it and and you know some of it's angry some of it's just curious um but it was really born uh in in the last year of my of my uh, you know graduate you know program as far as taking prelims i took my prelim exams and i'm supposed to start on my dissertation i had a topic and but i was kind of burned out and so in our department, we sort of had a history, an informal history of the, the people who pass prelims basically check out for a year mentally and do something that's fun. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm going I'm to write a novel. You know, I, I hadn't ever done that before. And I just was just throwing a lot of stuff in the blender. I've, I've always, you know, kind of like, like the two of you, always been interested in strange stuff and, you know, paranormal stuff. And so I, I thought, well, let's throw that in the blender. And I have a command of ancient texts and languages. We'll throw that in there and just sort of see what comes out. And so I wrote this sci-fi novel called The Facade, which it's partly dealing with ancient astronaut stuff and, you know, alien stuff and whatnot. And I've, I've wound up somehow i mean it's it's actually kind of a funny bizarre story of how i wound up on coast to coast am because i had listened to this show through graduate school it kept me awake i worked third shift uh at night and and to actually wind up on the show was just kind of crazy but i it was for this novel so we, we did this show in the novel well after that i started to get emails lots of emails and a few bizarre phone calls as well about this guy Zechariah Sitchin. Well, I, I didn't really know who he was, so I looked him up, and it, he sounded like a kindred spirit. Oh, ancient languages, and he's interested in this stuff. Well, I got, I got to read that. So I read The Twelfth Planet and just wanted to die. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it was just, it's just one of those things that you read, like, I don't even know where to begin. It's like mm -hmm. every page has a problem, you know. It, but I, I thought, well, since I am interested in this, since I am sort of what Sitchin pretends to be, uh, you know, in this ancient language stuff, I'll make a website. So I made this website, SitchinIsWrong.com, and went through some of his major ideas. You know. And, I mean, basically, to sort of encapsulate the kind of thing he says, uh, he purports to, again, be an adept at translating the ancient Sumerian tablets and Mesopotamian material and, you know, other stuff too. But his focus is the Mesopotamian stuff. 
And his reading and his translations of this material produces a narrative where we have um, a, a group of gods, the Anunnaki, which is a an actual Sumerian term. Uh, but in Sitchin's retelling of the material about the Anunnaki, they come from a planet called Nibiru, which is a rogue planet beyond you know the, the, the reaches of Pluto. And it cycles through our solar system every 3,600 years or so. And on one of these trips through the solar system, they, they got off at Earth. And they, they, they came to Earth because the Anunnaki were interested in a, creating a slave race, which wound up to be humans, and B, we're going to use those humans to mine gold, um, you know, because we, I guess we just like gold or we need gold to do something else. And so this was the, the story that Sitchin saw in the, uh, in the tablets. And he produced like a, a, <clears throat> a cylinder seal that purportedly shows the sun surrounded by 11 planets and see there's there for them they were 12 planets because they counted the sun and the moon and then there's this extra one and you know basically he creates an alien uh mythology out of the kineiform material and that's why we get talk about the anunnaki and their spaceships and supposedly again the bible has you know proof of the anunnaki presence in it and Again, that that's his basic narrative that that humanity was created by extraterrestrials, and those extraterrestrials are the Anunnaki, and their home planet is Nibiru, and that it's probably going to cycle through here at some time again, and that that sort of has has spawned a little bit of a a cottage industry about planet X mythology. Uh, we we heard a lot of this in 2012. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you if you guys. Our friends with uh, Stuart Robbins. Yes, good friend. Yeah, just just a great podcast, pseudo astronomy. Stuart has a whole series on Planet X nonsense, and I, you know, I regularly uh, link to his material on on uh, on my blog because, you know, here's somebody who has an expertise in that area that takes the time to to basically suffer through hours <laughs> <laughs> of, of this kind of stuff. You deserve some kind of credit for that. <laughs> but he produces, you know, a good analysis. He tries to be nice. He's he's basically nicer than I am, you know, when it when it comes to this kind of thing. But Sitchin, you know, sort of spawned a, a lot of that talk, and you know, it, it's really traceable to his book, The Twelfth Planet. Um, but he can't be. We can't tar and feather uh, Sitchin for all of what's said about Planet X. But he's certainly an important touch point for it. Yeah, that's uh, so. There seems to be a cyclical nature to the Planet X worries. So, so every time there's a new news story about astronomers finding an exoplanet, it seems to fire up the uh, Planet X mm-hmm. fans. And uh, there it is. There's Nibiru. See, see, there you go. He was right. <laughs> right, exactly. And and it, it's coming this way. And, and I'm not sure exactly. There, there's sort of two astronomical. Uh, things that bug me. One is the like the significance of the planets lining up, the syzygy type of event, because it doesn't seem to really have any impact. I think people don't understand how far away the planets are from each other. That's a fun. They, they think of the little you know solar system from their elementary class and don't realize the planets are really really far away. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and the other thing is this idea that some rogue planet is just going to sneak into the solar system 
with uh, nobody noticing it. Like it's gonna. I don't know what exactly. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, something, I, something, and then something happens, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm not an astronomer, and I don't know much about astronomy, but I do know there are tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of amateur astronomers out there who who really do have a a, a reasonable to high level of skill, you know, and and interest, and they put a lot of time into observing the sky. And and so it's just absurd to think, like you said, if there's some rogue planet drifting in here, that somebody's, you know, it's going to escape everyone's attention, you know, that that, that no one would would notice this and report it. You know, like like the NSA is going to track down this one person who's looking and, you know, show up at their door and intimidate them. And it's just ridiculous, you know, that this stuff goes out on, you know, astronomy forums and, and sites almost instantly because hey i saw this did anybody else see it that's just a natural reflex you know for that community and and, you know it's just it's the most unreasonable thing uh one of the most unreasonable things i've i've heard in a long time to suggest that this would go unnoticed Mm -hmm. but as stewart's you know i mean several of the episodes he's done like with nancy leader you know how this this, this planet could disguise itself or you know, blend into the background. <laughs> I mean, yeah. come on, you know, it, it's sounding like some of the Bigfoot theories about hyperdimensionality, being hyperdimensional, things like that. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it's just so odd. And of course it assumes that, that if it actually had mass, like it wouldn't have a whole range of effects, you know, on, on, you know, not only earth, but on, you know, other things in, in, in near proximity. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all. But I can't critique it, you know, from an astronomy, you know, point of view. That that's why I depend on people like Stewart to do what they're doing, and I'm really thankful that he does it. But from the ancient text perspective, I can tell you right now that you actually can, you know, look up all the places where Nibiru is mentioned in, you know, cuneiform tablets, and it does not cycle through the solar system every 3,600 years. In fact, there's one astrolabe uh, in the, in the mole Oppen uh, astronomical text that has Nibiru showing up every year. You know, Nibiru is, is associated with Jupiter in one text. It's associated with Mercury in another, in, in other texts, it's just called a star. So it, it can't be all of those things. It, it you know, what, what the term must denote is some sort of astronomical event Mm-hmm. It gets associated with various celestial bodies and, and you know, various – it means crossing, something like crossing um, at its heart. And so it probably probably marks a celestial event or some kind of crossing of one, you know, body with another in the imaginary planes, the way astronomers, you know, look at things. So, you know, it, it has nothing to do with a planet beyond Pluto that cycles through our solar system every 3,600 years. You literally – can't find that in the texts uh, and it, it's not that difficult to find this stuff like the you know the, the multi-volume thing but it's about 40 volumes the chicago assyrian dictionary uh, this massive work that took 70 years or whatever it was it actually just just got finished but they put every volume in pdf online for free and it's in transliteration. So I, there are videos on, on my site. I do I do exciting things on my website, like take screen capture videos of Mike going to these websites and showing people where to find information to check up on Sitchin. I mean, the, the, the video is boring. 
I mean, let's be honest, but it, but it's effective. I mean, in one of them, I, I go, Mike visits the electronic text corpus of Sumerian literature, where they probably get 10 hits a year. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just one of these things. That it's there because somebody gave money for it to exist. <laughs> and and so, you know, you go, I go up there, I type, okay, here's how you type in Anunnaki, and here's how you transliterate the Sumerian. You hit the button. And then it runs the search, and you get a whole list of all the places where the Anunnaki are mentioned. And you click on the little TR next to the line, that's your English translation, and you can go read it. And if you read it, again, this I'm, I'm sort of infamous for saying things like this, but I actually, it's, it's intentional. I actually mean it. I'm trying to help. Where I said, if you actually go read all of those instances, you will find that none of Sitchin's fundamental claims about the Anunnaki being from Nibiru and, again, going to Earth and doing this or that, none of these things are actually in the tablets. So the Mm -hmm. question isn't, oh, Mike disagrees with Zechariah Sitchin's translations. It's one translator against another. No, what I'm actually saying is that the stuff he he says he's translating literally doesn't exist. Like, it's just fabricated. It's pretty and, damning. Well, it, it, it is. Again, it's a boring video. Who wants to watch Mike narrate where his mouse moves on a screen, okay? But but it, it's effective because I don't want people to just say, well, i, I got to take Mike's word against Sitchin's word. No, no. go look for yourself. Mm-hmm. Just do the search, hit the button, read the results. And how easy would it be to make Mike go away if you found one line of one text that actually says what Sitchin says it says, okay, Mike would have to go away. But you're not going to find that. So I, I challenge you to just do it, and you'll find out. That's, you know, quote, unquote, let's be cliches here. Sitchinisrong.com. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not spectacular. There's no magic uh, in mm-hmm. this, it's just taking people back to primary sources and asking them to look. So I guess the big question here is, was Sitchin actually able to read these ancient languages? Yeah, I, this is probably w- one of the more inflammatory things I've said on online and on other, other shows. I don't think Sitchin could, could work in any of the ancient languages. Now, if he was Jewish, you know, he could, I would have to assume he could sight read Hebrew. But here's the illustration I use for people as as to why that doesn't matter for what he's doing. Okay, let, let's just take the Bible, all right? Old Testament. Oh, Sitchin can read, you know, sight read the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Oh, that's great. My my six-year-old can sight read the English Bible. Okay, my six-year-old is not a biblical scholar. My <laughs> six-year-old cannot work in the grammar of the text, even though— right he or she can sight-read the material. Mm-hmm. Being able to read something, and we all, we've all had the probably the horrific experience. I mean, I actually liked it because I'm, I'm a language geek. But most people, when you ask them to think about the English classes they had and diagramming sentences, mm-hmm. they just shudder and make, you know, want you to just shut up, you know, because <laughs> bringing back terrible memories. But, but to do... You know, any kind of literary analysis, grammatical analysis, you know, what, what used to be called philology, again, just, mm-hmm. just working with ancient texts, that's a whole lot more than sight reading. 
you have to know what interpretive questions to ask and you have to be able to analyze what's going on at a grammatical or linguistic level. And I don't think Sitchin could do any of that in, in any of these languages because in his books, he makes fundamental errors uh, of that kind of analysis. So I have to conclude that, okay, you, you probably could read Hebrew because uh, from what I've been able to find, you're, you're Jewish. So I'll, that, that even that's not a guarantee. A lot of people, you know, a lot of Jewish people I know can't read Hebrew, but a lot of them, of course, can. So that, that's like a coin flip. Mm-hmm. But let's just give you that one. Uh, can you actually do this kind of work that we have to do in graduate school or, or in this discipline? And I just don't see evidence of it. Do you think he was working in conjunction with someone else? No, I again, I, I try to take a more innocent view uh, of, of Sitchin, that he was content to sort of ima- reimagine the material and then came to believe his own mythology and, and then went looking for it. Um, I don't think he had anybody, you know, work on texts for him. Uh, you know, my, my big thing is, look, for, for you to, to sort of gain traction, whether you're Sitchin or Von Daniken or any other ancient astronaut theorist or re- really anybody in anything, you should not be afraid to submit your work to peer review. Now, I know, you know, that, that, Depending on who you get, what you might find a journal that's got a few cranky people on on the editorial board, and they and they might filter you out. Okay, I get that. But if you submit something to ten or fifteen journals, that's really not going to happen. If it's good work, somebody's going to recognize it as good work, and it's going to be publishable. And they may even you know publish a little disclaimer, or they may ask somebody to contribute to that volume that takes a contrarian position. That happens all the time in scholarship and and mm-hmm. you know scientific and journals and the humanities whatnot. It they're not afraid to publish something that some of their reviewers aren't going to agree with. So why aren't you doing that? You know, why don't you submit this, these ideas to peer review? Um, Sitchin, of course, never did that. Uh, I've never found any of the, you know, the more bizarre claims that he and, and those who sort of follow his work have used and drawn into their own work. I've never seen anything resembling, again, the, these sort of critical ideas to his thesis uh, in any reference material, any journal articles, you know, anything that, that would have been put through the peer review process. So I don't think he could lean on, on someone who actually knew what they were doing. Right. Uh, because if you know what you're doing, you're not going to be writing this, this set of ideas, especially in the case of the Anunnaki. Because again, it's not a question of translation. It's a question of does it even exist? in the tablets. I think you do a very good job on the site of, of doing kind of a, uh, I don't know, item by item breakdown or slash takedown, but, but some of the things you do are like really like, uh, I don't know what the right word is, bold and should be definitive, I guess. It's like the words that are not there, okay, period, right? <laughs> some of them are more <laughs> subtle and, and uh, I like those too. I thought, I thought, uh, people should check out the website. Obviously, we'll put a link to it in our show notes. But um, this has come up before in some of the other biblical studies books I've looked at, talking about the role of planets uh, mm-hmm. in that sort of Bronze Age time. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like- 
Yeah, it, it was you know, it, Israelites, uh, biblical writers, again, were on one level, they were no different, you know, than anybody else. You know, the, the Israelite cosmology is very consistent with, you know, conceptually anyway, with like Mesopotamian cosmology, Egyptian cosmology. You know, and, and part of that is this notion that the stars, again, celestial objects, heavenly objects, were, were either deities, they were, they were alive and, and were actual deities, or they were sort of under the control of deities. Well, why would they think that? Well, it, it's not real difficult to imagine. You know, you look up at the sky and you see things move, you know, change position. That's what living things do. They move. Uh, if, if it, you know, if it doesn't stay there, well, it, it, you know, maybe it's dead or something like that. But if you see it move a few times, then you know that something's going on up there. Um, and it's not like they can, they can, uh, you know, abstract again, the way they do, they don't have any sort of, uh, you know, scientific understanding of these things. And so they know they didn't, you know, I didn't put those things up there and, you know, they've always been there and they, they kind of move around. So something's going on up there and, and we don't do that. So who's like, you know, well, the gods must do that. They, there must be some sort of divine explanation. Uh, for what the the celestial objects are doing, so that led to you know various expressions of you know uh, assigning you know either deity names or you know attributes or whatever again to certain objects in the sky. Uh, Israelites are, are a little bit different because they're you know they're you know, there, there's a, there's specific commandments against doing that kind of thing, although it really didn't prevent a lot of them from doing it. Uh, there are lots. There's lots of material in the Bible about uh, even people thinking they're they're worshiping the God of Israel correctly if they bow down to the sun, and because that's the biggest one and the brightest one, and, and well, surely you know that that must be okay. And so th- there, even even in the prohibitions, even though they're there, there you'll still see this kind of thing show up in in the Hebrew Bible, uh, linking it again to the to the God of Israel. It, it's it's much more freer in, in other places because they don't have these these prohibitions. But the cosmology, again, is kind of the same. Um, you know, we could talk about Israelite cosmology too. That the Bible is very consistent with it with what's going on around them. It, if you read literally, okay. If if you just you know if you're consistent in your literalism, let's put it that way, then Genesis describes a round flat Earth. Uh, covered by a dome to which affixed are affixed the stars. Uh, some of them again are, are living. Some of them are not. You know they they're they're totally stationary. Uh, you have you know windows in heaven. You've got you know the waters under the earth. You've got water surrounding the earth. I mean all these things uh, are present in not only Genesis but in the Hebrew Bible. So Israelite cosmology is very consistent with you know with its ancient Near Eastern uh, milieu. And viewing the stars as divine beings is part of that. Um, you know, they they didn't they couldn't know better, you know, than than what they did. And um, has Sitchin? I've read that um, some of his beliefs have inspired religious cults and religious sects. Do you know anything about that? Well, I, th- I think boy, is that being too generous? <laughs> Um, you know, on, on the one hand, I'd have to, I'd have to kind of know what, what people are specifically thinking about. I think the Planet X stuff, 
again, even though you know Sitchin, his his early works when he's talking about you know Nibiru, he's not linking it to, um, you know things like 2012 and whatnot. That that happened later uh, when others did it, and you have you have cults you know that were really into that, and and frankly still are. I mean they mm-hmm. you know cults are like that. They just they just don't dry up overnight when something doesn't turn out to be what what was predicted. Right. So you know you. You, you have you still have that going on. So can we lay that at Sitchin's feet? Well, a little bit. You know, he he might have inspired some element of that. Um, some people might hear what you just said and think of uh, like the comet Hale-Bopp incident uh, that was much earlier than 2012, where uh, you know the Heaven's Gate cult. They had a bunch mm-hmm. of people commit suicide, and that was that was with a specific comet. It wasn't really uh, Nibiru, and Sitchin didn't really have anything specifically to do with that, but. Um, you know, you you get that kind of thing with a few elements of what he did write. So even if he didn't do it himself, he um, he gave people the tools, I guess, to uh, you know to to take his ideas and, and run that direction with it. Right. Yeah, it seems like um, it, it, he's been. Um, uh, I don't know what you call it when you like take someone else's stuff and sort of take pieces off that you want and sort of repurpose mm-hmm. them for your own mythology. That that seems to happen. Cherry a lot. picking. Yeah, well, cherry. Yeah. And it's not. I mean, it's not to the point of exclusivity or you know or just to support things. You it's it's just like it feeds into like these little little nodules feed into sort of this sort of generic space uh, alien or ancient alien type stories. I, I don't know why yeah. exactly, but they, they certainly all seem to like grab what they like and ignore what they don't. Um, so maybe it is cherry picking in that sense. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Well, I, I think, you know, you, you you guys did an episode with, uh, was it on your show or was it Archaeological Fantasies? The, with Jason Colavito, um, you know, going back to the, the horror literature and the, the yeah, theosophical literature. Yeah, yeah, on, on yeah. Archie Fantasies, yep. Yeah, and that's really important um, to recognize because, you know, you have, I think the reason, there well, there are a number of reasons why this 
idea still fascinates because you have people who, you know, look at ancient alien theory and, and Sitchin certainly fits into this because of his talk about how humanity was created by, by the Anunnaki uh, as a slave race. Um, they, they don't like Darwinism. You have people who don't like Darwinism and they don't like creationism the way it, it's typically articulated. And so this provides kind of a middle ground uh, where you get you know, some alternative form of, of origins that is that sort of pokes both of the other two in the eye, you know, and, and, and kind of, you know, people like that, that they're, they're sticking it to both of the other possibilities. And then this becomes something to work with. And it, it, it has elements of, you know, mystery and wonder again, because you, you have these alien gods, you know, involved and, and there's this, this other world that, that is, you know, beyond the world that science tells us about or traditional re- religion tells us about. And it has this feel of, again, we're, we're, we're tapping into esoteric secret knowledge. So, you know, those ideas float a lot of boats. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they attract a lot of attention. And, and they, you know, unfortunately, you know, for both the, the scientific community and, and the religious theological community, uh, you I, I personally look at that and think, have we done such a really bad job here of making what we, what these other two say so boring, <laughs> you know, and it's so unfascinating that people just feel like, man, I got to go to this third one here just to, to enjoy thinking about deep things like human origins. You know, I have to go to this other one because the other two are just so plain Jane and, you know, they, they just... They, they want to dump it for whatever reason. And I think Sitchin's work really does sort of play on that string um, and, re- and really gets attention because of that. Uh, but you, 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 you folks have done, you know, a lot of episodes on like, you know, fantastic archaeology and anything that seems out of place sure. allows people to poke the other two positions in the yeah. eye. There's always going to be a type of personality that's attracted to the outlier idea, right? I mean, just, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, they're, they're, it just, the, who, whether they're being contrarian or they're just, the, those people can't possibly know. Everybody thinks that there's got to be another answer, that, that kind of approach. So, mm-hmm. um, see, I, I have found that both in the Christian community and also in the, what, what I guess for lack of a better term, we'll call the alternative, you know, fringe archaeology community. They, they both tend to, you know, caricature scholarship generally, and I'm, I'm including the humanities here, and also science, you know, again, as this, this sort of arrogant, uh, dismissive beast that, you know, claims it has every answer. And then the, that that caricature becomes a thing that turns people off, you know, to you know science or to you know mainstream religion or something like that. And that, I mean, you run into people like that, you know, if you go to academic conferences. Yeah, sure, we can all you know if, if we put this description on the table, everybody there would would think of one professor or one scientist that yeah, that's them. But for the most part, the the community just doesn't think that way. And, and the more you, you actually get into, you know, good literature, uh, academic literature, you find out that there really is a willingness to say, you know, I don't know, or we don't know, or we're still thinking about it, or, or mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're landing here because we don't really have a better place to land, but we might land somewhere else a year from now. I mean, the, there is a, a certain amount of, 
of willingness to, to think about things and to change positions and, and, and do that. It, it's not this monolithic, um, again, arrogant, dismissive thing. And, you know, maybe we just need a better way to, to, to market the fact that this isn't really what, what it's about. It, 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 it's, you know, to defy the caricature, maybe that would help. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm being a little bit of Pollyannish there, but I, I still hold some, <laughs> you know, some hope that that kind of thing matters. Um, people just are not exposed to really the best work uh, in science. It doesn't filter down. I, I could get cranky at, at this point. So, so if I get, if I get cranky here, just tell me, but I, I have a real, I, I have a real problem with the way not only people in my discipline, like biblical studies or, or theological discourse, but any, you know, pick any discipline, how, the academic community does so little to make sure that the real research does filter down to the masses, to the mm-hmm. non-specialist. Now, it, it happens here. And your, your show is an example of it. You know, Jason's blog is, a, is an example of it. Stewart's you know, podcast is an example of it. This can be done. Uh, you know, uh, all these ancient astronaut theorists and enthusiasts running around, oh, scholars and scientists are so mystified as to how this was built. And, oh, they, they just look at this and they just sort of, you know, st- they're, they're, they just start babbling and, you know, they lose their minds and curl up in the fetal position because they just can't grasp it. No, actually, no. Actually, there's like 20 peer-reviewed articles on, on this particular thing that you think that the scientific community will never touch. And can't possibly process. It's just that that stuff isn't released on the internet for free. Yeah, that lives in academic journals. A lot and, of the, the terminology they use is very difficult for lay right. people to understand it's, as well. It's filled with jargon. It, it, it's filled with you know endless qualifications out the wazoo because you, you know you got to make sure that everybody who's reading it in, in peer review knows that you've read everything else. You know it, it's so dense, it, but. You know, it, it's there. It, it's actually there. And so somebody needs to come along and say, you know what? We could take this material and make it translatable. We can make it decipherable to the, the non-specialist. And, and sure, there's people who can do that. But, but is, who are the people who take the time mm-hmm. to do that? Because the, the people producing the, the real scholarship um, – there really is something to the publisher parish thing, you know, early in a, in a scholar's career that that's legit. Um, it is a concern. Uh, and then, you know, you, you spend enough time sort of writing for your own colleagues and, and let's be honest, that's the stuff you're really interested in. And so you want to spend your time doing that. Even if you have tenure, that that's the most fun to you. What it, what doesn't feel like fun is, is saying to the to the scientist or to the scholar, "Hey, can you take this journal article that's 15 pages long on some really narrow topic, and can you can you reduce that to 500 words and still have it be kind of accurate, but don't use the jargon in it. Make it decipherable to the. That's a lot of work. Yes, and people just don't want to do that work. And they're different and worlds, so really. They're, they're totally different worlds. Mm-hmm. Totally different worlds, and. But it, to me, it's important that that people, you know, it, it's not like I'm I'm saying you know so you know people you know listening out there I'm not I'm not saying look, this needs to be fifty percent of your of your job you know this needs to be fifty percent of your time, try doing two or three in a year, 
Because if enough of you did that, if, if 20 of you did that, okay, that's 40, 50, 60 articles living somewhere that are going to get you know, reasonable traffic that someone can at least find and get access to better information. Why, why does it have to be just the internet? You know, why does that have to be the pool of knowledge for the non-specialist? Um, you know, and, and, and unvetted, you know, and it, 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 it's, it's random. You, there's no site that exists that, you know, if you go to this site, you're going to be able to read it and understand it. And it's going to be a, 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 a readable version of stuff that has survived peer review. Why can't we have sites like that? And, and I realize that we, you know, there are a handful of them, but they don't get promoted. There, there's no, there's no sort of coherent strategy, you know, to, to make to have this clearinghouse of really good information like this, but you know something needs to be done like that because if yeah, if I, it's not, people people are going to find what they find, and it's hard to shoot at them because well at least they search for something. You, yeah, you find garbage, but you're you you were trying, and this is kind of what came out, and oh well. So I think it's a shame this sort of thing isn't supported by academic communities. I know within my own field of linguistics that I write about a lot of fringe topics and uh, just do that for my blog. And um, But it's just not, you know, you're not going to get funding for these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And it's really people who are hobbyists like myself and, and you and Stu Robbins who are putting out these these blogs and trying to correct a lot of these myths and misconceptions. Yeah, I, and I... I mean, I go to the academic conferences every year in, in my field, and invariably I have somebody come up to me and say, why do you do that? And, yeah, I get <laughs> Why that do you go on this show? You know, why do you go to this conference? Well, and, and again, when you, if they're patient enough to hear you out, that, that, look, scholarship is supposed to serve the community. Why is that a foreign concept? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a struggle. I mean, if you think about going back to Carl Sagan, for example, apparently he took a lot of heat from the academic side of the world because he was trying to popularize stuff and people saw it as an ego trip right. and lots of other things. And But he's had a huge impact. I mean, a yep. huge impact culturally because he simplified science uh, down to the point that a lot of people could understand it and be exposed to it for the first time. Um, yep. Yeah. It, it's it's really a it is unfortunate because on the one hand I, I know scholars who won't even publish much in um, in the academic literature because they're it, it's it's analysis paralysis oh I can't publish this because there's still something that I have to think about mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. well like like that's going to change you know. Like, like like people who do publish stuff, they're done thinking about what they write. No, of course they're not. You know, but 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 you have people that are just they're petrified by the fear of being critiqued in even the slightest way. Yes. You know, like like I missed something or so you you take them off the table. What about everybody else? You know, I, I think you know then it becomes again the chore of trying to make this trying to communicate to someone who really doesn't speak your language, doesn't know the first thing about your field, uh, and that most of what you would really like to say would be right over their head, but yet they have an interest in this thing, and they're exposed to 
bad stuff. You're really flawed. Mm-hmm. I, I, I am you? envious of the Just boldness. I'm envious of the boldness with which the ignorant will speak their mind. That's... <laughs> I... <laughs> Oh yeah, when it comes to things like stereotypes and just yeah. mis- misconceptions, you know, people are very emboldened. Well, the, the, the simple thing, mean, what you're kind of pointing to is that the way people reach conclusions in academia is is, is one uh, of intense scholarship and and careful study, and as a consequence, it's a slow process. The results the results mm-hmm. are obfuscated from the average reader. And and then only appreciated by people who are specialists, and mm-hmm. and it's tough. Yeah. And and in the, in the general public, you if just speaking, science is my fan thing. But but it, people conflate uh, science and technology, for example, and that bugs me. Like people would say, "Yay, science!" and they hold up their iPhone. Well, that that's a piece of technology. It's it's it. You, people use science to get there, but science is a methodology for figuring out what's factual and real and reproducible versus what's not. And and there's different methodologies and different ways to approach the world. And you can use those different approaches and live a perfectly healthy life. My parents don't have that worldview. They, they're in a very different place. But the world lets them get by just fine. They're doing fine. And I love them very much. And I, I don't want to argue with them about their worldview. But... This whole approach uh, of uh, of the media is one where if it's a mystery and it's fun, that gets air. But if it seems like it would make people have to think, it mm-hmm. doesn't. And I don't understand why that is necessarily. But apparently, it's tied to advertising. It, you know, I, I don't really know yeah. exactly. But but anti intellectualism. Yeah, but. <laughs> and it, it, the world is complicated, and everything's more complicated than anybody can know. And, and even the, the best experts in a field or an expertise or a, uh, an area of study, you know, they may work their whole lives and just kind of get a hold of what's going on, you know? <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I understand that that complexity is hard to distill down into manageable chunks, and I'm, I'm sympathetic. Uh, in fact, we wouldn't be doing this show if we didn't think it was somewhat possible, right? But, But... I, I, and I wish I had an answer as well, but I, I'm very sympathetic. You're, you're, you're preaching to the choir here uh, that that uh, it's it's a hole in, in in our culture and it needs to be addressed. And I hope yeah, we're trying to bridge it. Exactly. I hope in some small way we're helping. But but you're right. That's uh, it, the idea. If I talk about we don't know where these things came from, was it aliens? I mean, if you look at the ancient aliens television show, probably seventy or eighty percent of the content is them saying, "Was it? What if?" You know, it's little questions mm-hmm. with pretty pictures, and, and that, that's yeah. We 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 have to get people to realize that that questions are not answers. Yeah, and, yeah, and they're not even evidence. They're just questions. You know that, that that's what Good they point. are. It is um, the. It's a very pretty approach. It's the, just like when I was in middle school, and you know, would it be cool if you know Superman and the Hulk had a fight? Well, they're DC and Marvel. Yeah, but wouldn't it be cool? You know, that's the whole show. Like it's just a show about <laughs> would it be cool if, right? That's. Right. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't. You no, know. I. Yeah. Yep. Ditto. Anyway, it, it really is. It really is a a problem because now, now I work for a software company. And, you know, just just a little glimpse, you know, and and we have these conversations all the time Man, we'd really like to develop, you know, this this or that database, you know, for the academic community. And and we know what's coming, you know, when we propose something like that. Okay, 
you'd produce this wonderful thing for the 20 people who care. <laughs> okay. But, but now let, let's, let's add up the cost, you know, that, that you have your time and this other person's time and it takes X number of weeks or months or year, you know, in, in other words, how are we going to recover that cost? Because we have, we do have to remember that we're actually a business and businesses can do all sorts of cool things, but if they never cover their costs, they won't be doing cool things for very long. True. So, you know, you, you, you have this, this this money aspect you know to it so inside our building we're always thinking okay how many of these again i'm speaking as as one of the the academic content people in the building this is not representative of the whole company but i'm thinking like how many of these sort of lame things can we create <laughs> that that will will still serve people at a certain you know, point it'll it'll still take them from where they are a little a little notch further down the road to to better understanding of something. How many of those can we create that lots of people will buy so that we can justify doing this other thing over here mm. that that we really are tracking on at least in I de- in my department. You know that that sort of thing. So you have that. You've got if it's if it's like grant funding. Well, where does that money go? That money's going to go to the to the serious science or the serious research Mm. uh, just by definition Uh, even private donors they want to know okay if you do this if i give you this money to do this thing what is the payoff either for us or for the wider community it it has to be what we're talking about has to be marketed i hate to use that term but it has to be marketed that it 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 does add value It, it it supplies it fills a need okay it touches a nerve. It fills a need. And so that's why it needs to be done. And, and if you care about this thing, that's why you need to contribute to it. Um, it it's not, you know, to make profit or, you know, to, to, to use up your, you know, this, this item in your budget that says we have to give money away to do X, Y, or Z and then justify it. Okay, let's try to justify something over here. Let's take a little bit of this and make its own category, you know, so we can play one off against the other. But it, I still think, again, these things can be done. There just have to be enough people, you know, who, who care. And then if there are people who care, then there have to be people who will, will sort of donate their time. Because they're not going to make money producing that article for the non-specialist. It's not going to. It's not going to raise their salary any with with their, you know, with their university. You know, as they sort of climb up the ladder, either on their way to or after tenure. It, it's not going to count in those ways. So they really have to think about it as I'm doing this for a good reason. And that's good enough. That's sufficient. Yeah, it, it something fundamental I think is going to have to change in our culture for for that kind of thing to get a real boost because it, the sort of I don't it's almost like a prestige project from an intellectual perspective. It matters mm-hmm. culturally. It matters to pushing us further along the the line to knowing more about things, but. But if you can't pay your bills, you know, that, then you're stuck, right? You can't so, do it. Right. So I, I, I'm very, very sympathetic because like most we people. We should go who, back to the patronage system. Well, the pay, you know, I don't know who our Medici would be, but, uh, you know, if, uh, you know. <laughs> Patreon. Well, if, if the, well, obviously Patreon. <laughs> but, I, you know, clearly if, if somebody from Google wanted to sponsor me going into monster research full time, I'm in, Right. You know, oh, that, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the things we're interested in, 
you know, any academic is always struggling with, you know, getting funding. I mean, that if you're in the pure sciences, you've got to find, you know, you spend more than half your time doing grant proposals. It's just, you know, oh, yeah. you're not doing the thing you want to be doing. You're doing the thing you have to be doing so that you can do the thing you want to do. It's it's Yeah, all the drudgery. Yeah, it's challenging. Oh, so, but speaking of challenging in science, since this is supposed to be the science show about monsters, I, I, I do want to ask a little bit about the cuneiform tablets that you're talking about mm-hmm. here. Um, what, what is the content of these ancient tablets? I mean, we didn't really even talk about what cuneiform is. Maybe we should just a little bit about what, what is this material he's actually looking at when he, or, or would have been looking at had he been able to read it if he could. Cuneiform is, is a term that really refers to the the instrument used to create the characters on on the clay tablets. So the, these little wedge, it's a little stylus. You use this instrument to create a graphic representation, you know, of, of the language. And of course, in their medium was clay tablets, and then they use the little stylus to make little wedge marks. And so that becomes the graphic means by which they record and, of course, preserve their language. And, and Cuneiform texts uh, could be in different languages. For instance, the, the Sumerians came up with this idea again to create this script, you know, this this system of graphic representation, and their innovation was adopted by another civilization in Mesopotamia, the Akkadians, that uh, you know superseded them, and it was also a convention. You know, adopted by other cultures again to preserve you know their own language. So there's there are different languages, different civilizations that have recorded their thoughts through the same means. You know, cuneiform writing. Uh, it's not just Sumerian, and it's, it's also not even just Mesopotamian. You have, for instance, at Ugarit, which is a city in ancient or I, I, what would be roughly ancient Syria. They use the same technique, but they're, they used it to make an alphabet for their language. Sumerian and Akkadian are not alphabetic. They're syllabic uh, in, in their nature. So it could be different languages, different civilizations using the same uh, kind of script. Now, what's really important, especially when we talk about Sitchin, okay, let, let, let's say, you know, we, we're having this discussion and the, the lights go on in the, in the Sitchin promoter's head that, boy, I wow, I, I went and did that search on that website Mike showed me, and he's right. You know, this, Some of this stuff just doesn't exist. So let's take that off the table. And then the argument becomes, well, you're saying that you know, Sitchin is wrong in his you know, translation. And, of course, we can argue whether Sitchin did any translation at all, but we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, you're, you're wrong about what this word means, and, and Sitchin says it means this, and you say it means that. So we're at a stalemate. Well, actually, we're not. Because what's really interesting is in the, in the case of the Akkadians and the Sumerians was that when the Akkadians adopted the cuneiform script from the Sumerians, they created what were called lexical lists. That's our name for them. What they are is bilingual dictionaries. So when the scribes, uh, the Akkadian scribes were making lists of their own words, their own vocabulary, you know, for their students and, you know, for to, you know, save for posterity as well, they would in a second column put the Sumerian equivalent. Now, Akkadian is, is a language that we have piles and I'm, I'm talking tens, hundreds of thousands of tablets in various stages of 
you know, Akkadian or Assyrian or Babylonian, again, and there are different regional dialects as well. There are just piles and piles of this stuff. So there, the, that language is very well known. It's, it's East Semitic, if we want to get into, into the sort of the geography. So it's a clearly understood language, and that makes these lexical lists, these bilingual dictionaries, really valuable because there's no ambiguity as to what the Akkadian term would mean. And if they align it in a bilingual text, a bilingual you know, lexicon dictionary with a Sumerian term, that is of, of tremendous significance for understanding what the Sumerians meant, okay, what their own language meant. So this whole idea of, of someone who wants to promote Zechariah Sitchin's material, uh, e- you know, even getting past the point of the stuff that doesn't exist, and they're arguing about tra- translations. Oh, Mike, you say this word means this, but Sitchin says it means you know, the fiery rockets or you know, some kind of spacecraft or something. Well, let's go look at a lexical list. Right. And, and we can see what the Sumerian term meant and then read the text in terms of how the writer intended to be understood. And guess what? It's not talking about spaceships and visits from aliens from Nibiru. Okay? It, it's still not talking about any of this stuff. So I like to put it this way to people. Look, here's the choice that you have to make. I'm either going to let the Akkadians and the Sumerians define their vocabulary for me, or I'm going to let Sitchin do that. Which of those two propositions seems more reasonable? Yeah, and, I think- and you're left with, I would hope, like, well, duh. But people, people believe this because they want to believe it. It fills some you know, kind of gap, or it has the element of mystery that we talked about before, and, and and contents them more, it entertains them more, it fascinates them more than something else. Yeah, I think a lot of people would read what Sitchin has to say and then they just don't pursue it any further and they're not interested in, in looking at this uh, evidence. They're, they're just, as you yeah, say, believing what he says. And, and I, can, I can be honest, look, this I'll, I'll grant you, I, I enjoy it, but I'm a geek, Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. Most people aren't going to care. It's going to be just, you know, like just the, the, the most boring thing that they can possibly imagine. And, and, and anyone who is passionate about a particular field, whether it's linguistics or archaeology or some thing in science, it's hard for us to imagine how people wouldn't be fascinated, <laughs> you know, with, with what fascinates us. Sure. But the reality is most people don't care. And so when they come across a claim you know, in, in a Sitchin book or something else, you're right. They're not going to be tenacious about tracking it down mm-hmm. and, and finding out. They're, they're going to believe whatever they read in this source. And if they go talk to someone, you know, a friend at work, you know, minister at, at church or some person down the block or, or even if they email, you know, like a, a, a real scientist, and of course they don't, you know, they don't get an answer or they get something that's, you know, doesn't feel satisfying. They're just going to conclude, ah, oh, I've stumbled across something that people don't want to look at or they can't address. You know, they're going to fill in these gaps and then it becomes truth by anomaly or truth by silence truth by neglect or something else like that and and that's good enough for them that that's that's where the road is going to end for them so what if we took that problem 
all right, of, of this material being a little bit dry and hard to get into. And we combined it with podcasting so that people could just <laughs> subscribe to this cuneiform uh, material. You ready? We could call it Feet of Clay. <laughs> I knew a pun was coming there. Right, right. Uh, yeah, Very nice, I, Blake. I, d- I died a little bit, so <laughs> mission accomplished. Uh, well, let's move on to the, the last question then. Uh, so, Michael, the question we ask all of our guests on the show, what's your favorite monster? Oh, th- this one is actually pretty easy for me. Uh, it's got to be the Loch Ness Monster. Okay. It, nice. it is. And I and the reason I say that is because that's the one I wish the most was real. <laughs> uh, I did my first book report in junior high school on the Loch Ness Monster. Wow, nice. That that was it. You know, when 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 we were introduced to this concept of book reports and and we actually had to do one. I it it took me 5 minutes to know what I wanted to do. <laughs> Did you write it from a skeptical perspective, or did you believe in it then? It, it was basically a book report on. Uh, I, I tried. It was it was above my, you know my my knowledge grade then, but I tried to review or go through Roy Mackle's book. Nice on, on uh, you know sea serp sea monsters, and then and then I tied that to somebody else's book on uh, the Loch Ness monster. So I had two sources uh, for my my book report. So it wasn't. It wasn't really skeptical, but I, I wouldn't put it in the in the overly gullible, you know, kind of thing either. So no, but I, you I, took I something you cared about and used it to learn how to write a paper. That's fantastic, right? Yeah, yeah. So that, so that was that was my eighth grade adventure, you know, into that. And I, again, that's the one I, I wish the most that I could could go see. Which is why I, I'm one of these people that I have to confess I would love to see somebody clone a dinosaur or clone a woolly mammoth yes i would go i would pay to see that i don't care if it's as big as a chicken (laughs) i'd still go go to see it yeah Yeah, we we did an episode on thylacines the 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 sort of work they're doing on trying to bring that species back i i i too would be very interested in in what they could do that it's a it's a field of uh I'm, i'm very uh it's like, yeah, there's ethical questions and, yeah. you know, we don't know what the risks are, yeah, all that. But it's cool, right? Yeah, <laughs> one day. Right. I need to do I'm, it to find I'm out. Just there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm exactly the same place. Have you guys read How to Build a Dinosaur? No, I've no. got it. It's on my reading list. Oh, that that's a great book. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just fascinated by the idea of reverse engineering the genetic code Again, people people need to understand they're not talking about changing anything. They're just talking about flipping switches. Yeah, we, and, we, and if you could do that and produce a dinosaur, um, man, I yeah, I'd pay for that. I <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a project for you. Yeah, <laughs> it would be very cool. I, 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 you're right. In theory, the the information's still in there. It would be fascinating to unlock it. I, the, we've talked to a guy who did get as far as like getting uh, chicken embryos to have teeth. You know, mm-hmm. they don't bring them to. I, I'm torn because I guess maybe it's for the best that I'm not in those fields because if I, <laughs> if if I don't know that I would stop those embryos. I want to have a chicken with teeth. I want to see what happens, right? But they always they always terminate them really early. And just examine the, you know, the, the embryos. But I, I, I'd like to see what a chicken with teeth behaves like. I, I'm curious. 
Oh, in future, I think these things will become more acceptable. I hope anyway. You know, there's insufficient mad scientists out there, right? So. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and again, I, I don't want to pretend like there aren't ethical issues. I, I know there are, but again, I, I'm just trying to be transparently honest. That, that's the one, <laughs> that's something I want to see. It is um, very cool. So. Yeah, it, it would just be awesome. Well, Mike, I, I want to say thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. This was really interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. It was indeed. Well, I love your show. So if you have guests, plug your show. You know, listen to Monster Talk. I mean, it's, I love it. <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks thank a lot. You. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today you heard Dr. Michael Heiser, author of the Sitchin is Wrong website, discussing the lack of evidence for Sitchin's ancient astronauts' interpretation of ancient texts from Sumer. We'll be talking about Sitchin from an astronomy view very soon in an upcoming episode. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself or my guests and do not necessarily represent the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you'd like to find out the real views of Skeptic Magazine, let's split up. You check out your local newsstand, and Shaggy Scooby and I will go look in that old abandoned tower. You want us to go into that tower? We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. The pedantic in the audience may want me to say that the ancient country is Sumer, and that the ancient language is Sumerian, and that there is no such place as Sumeria. Sadly, there just isn't time to include that fascinating detail in today's episode. Yes, might have gotten away with it too. It wasn't for these blasted kids and their dogs.
And it would have been mine if it hadn't been to those meddling kids. And I'd have done it, too, if you kids hadn't have come along. You blasted kids. Why didn't you mind your own business? And I'd have found it if it wasn't for you, Snoopers. And I wish you'd have minded your own business. Blasted meddling kids. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.